We're going to have our readings now. So uh, our first one is from Numbers chapter 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and lived. And then we're continuing in uh, chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. Next reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert." Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, 
the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them did. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So if you are, th- if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. This is God's word. Evening, good evening. Uh, let me have my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. Uh, if we've not met, uh, love to do so afterwards. Uh, apologies, a slightly pixelated Forrest Gump on the background. We'll come to him. Uh, hopefully you can make him out. What's he doing? Running. What do you say to him? That's quite good, actually. I'm not even going to do the naff thing. Oh, not good enough. Let's do it again. That was actually quite good first time. Well done. Saved us all a bit of embarrassment. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, what wonderful truths we've sung of this evening. And we pray that those songs will be in our heads all week long as we sing of your goodness to us that there's no sin that can separate us from you if we come back in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Wonderful songs. Father, we've sung that our hearts are prone to wander from you. And again this evening, please, uh, if we're a Christian, bring our heart back to you. If we're not yet persuaded, would our hearts be won for you by how good you are and by the kind warnings you give us? Would your spirit help us to hear them rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of my life, I grew up a slightly complacent sort of bloke, uh, particularly in terms of timekeeping. I slightly ran with the philosophy, getting arriving somewhere early is just a waste of good time. Why would you want to do that? Um, somewhat rude to others, perhaps, potentially. But I, I sort of always got it, sort of, sort of just about made it, put it out by the skin of my teeth. You know, meeting, got there in time. Tube journey, just about get there in time. Airplanes. It's always a bit more stressful, but uh, you got there in time. And I used to think it was quite fun, you know, don't waste time by being early. It was kind of my way of uh, going about things. It changed a decade or so ago, but I just got it wrong. So we'd had a brilliant holiday, a family holiday down in Biritz. We'd driven uh, down Biritz on the Atlantic coast, magnificent, magnificent sunshine, wonderful, uh, big, white, sandy beaches uh, for a fortnight or so. And uh, we were getting a ferry back, an overnight ferry to the UK from Caen. Uh, do you like that? Cool. And um, uh, so about eight hours drive, that's fine. Eight o'clock ferry in the evening. So set off, uh, you know, 10 o'clock-ish or something from the campsite. And oh, where are we going to stop for lunch? Tour. Oh, beautiful city. Yeah, let's stop in Tour. Very attractive. Uh, so we uh, went to Tour and uh, had a, a lovely lunch. 
and sort of amble round, you know, very pretty town, city really, isn't it? It's a big city. And uh, should we get going on the road again now? No, we've got plenty of time, plenty of time, plenty of time. Let's just enjoy beautiful sunshine. Ah, oh, ooh la la. I'm going to go back to the UK. Let's just enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it. And uh, we left about 4 p.m., no problem. Only two hours or so, maybe two and a half hours drive. So 4 p.m., it's fine, four hours. But we got on the wrong road. And so it's a bit like you want to be on the M1 to go north, and we got on the B3950, you know, this <laughs> behind this sort of magnificent display of French tractor craft. Uh, and you started to think, oh, well, well, we'll join up with the main road eventually. So it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then this sort of the stress level sort of, what time are we meant to be there for tickets? Uh, 7.30, you've got to be there by 7.30. No, no, we're fine, we're fine. You know, the stress levels go up a bit. You know, one-year-old in the back, a bit scratchy. Um, Whose idea was it to go to tour? Oh, it's fine, it's fine, we've got plenty of time, plenty of time. Well, why didn't we pay attention we've got other city? Well, it's fine, no, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. If we miss this ferry, there is no other ferry. We have no cot for baby, we have no bottles, nothing to feed it, we have got nothing to do, even if you stay in a hotel, nowhere for baby to be. Why don't we leave tomorrow? We'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. What time? 7.30 we need to be. Fine, fine. And you know, sort of the stress level is slightly rising in the car. But it's fine. You know, Caen, signpost, brilliant. 7.30, oh, we'll be fine. Driving to the centre of Caen, great. Where are the ferries? How do you lose a ferry port? Where is the ferry port? And you sort of drive, you can't see the signs anywhere. And where did you do? Have a look at the tickets. Where is it? It's in Wistrom. Well, where's Wistrom? It's not Cole. Why is it not Cole? You go from Cole, it says Cole on the ferry. Wistrom's a t- okay. And so you get this sort of, sort of panic rising. It's now, you know, we're getting up to about 25 to 22. Eventually we pulled off. Pull over, says uh, Kerry, my wife. She jumps out of the car and goes up to this uh, Frenchman at Satin, a cafe just on, on the main square of uh, Caen. And uh, sort of panic. You know, my wife's French is actually quite good. But uh, slight like panic. Oué, Wistrom. Oué, Angleterre. Uh, you know, <laughs> panic. Oué, uh, Le Ferry. Oh, and this, sort of, this wonderful man. I have no idea what his name was. Wonderful man. Regardez moi. <laughs> Jumped in his car and <laughs> sped off. It's just regardez and, and we get there, gate shut. <laughs> Our French hero jumps out of the car, obviously knows the bloke on the door, manages to get to open the door, we got on. Get in, drive, into our overnight cabins, adrenaline gone. <laughs> this is the best sleep I've ever had. When you've had that sort of, and it all goes, amazing. And since that time, I'm a little OCD with timekeeping. <laughs> Flight's at four o'clock. What time are we getting there? Twelve. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. You just learn. Sometimes you learn. You learn from stresses. It's good not to be complacent. Complacency's gone. Now, why do I tell you that story? I don't know. It's cathartic. <laughs> Let's turn to... No, I do know. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10. It's really this section is here to say, in the Christian life, do not be complacent. We're going to arrive really tonight at chapter 10 and verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Don't be complacent, 
in the Christian life. Paul is going, he's writing here to Christians who have somewhat of a half-hearted, casual discipleship. They're dabbling in sin. And he says to them, stop it. You've got to put aside this half-heartedness, put aside your complacency, run. You need more urgency in the Christian life. Will you please stop ambling along in the Christian life, get clear what you're doing, and run. Run the Christian life urgently. You need a much clearer focus on eternity, a much clearer focus upon your God. Run. Don't amble. Now, if you're joining us tonight, uh, we're working our way this year through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, you've got to fit the mold of Jesus Christ. Here's a church that um, was being squeezed into the mold of the world. Uh, the difference between the church and the city and the, the unbelieving world of Corinth was minimal. They're just, the church is being squeezed into the mold of the world. And Paul is saying, no, you want to be molded by Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. And uh, this month we've been in the section chapters 8 to 10. Really how you use your freedom as a Christian is kind of, sort of the overarching, uh, I guess, theme of it. And so we've seen in uh, chapter 8, if you're a Christian, you want to give up your rights for the sake of other Christians to help them so you don't cause them stumble. Last time, if you're a Christian, give up, your, give up your freedom for the sake of those who are not. Do whatever it takes to make it easy for someone who's not a Christian to hear the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 9 tonight, or end of 9 into 10 tonight, it's for your own health. Give up your apparent freedom and go hard after Jesus Christ. And next time, we'll pull it all together. You live for the glory of God. That's got to shape you. But all of those things have a factor when you come to make decisions. How does it affect other Christians? What about the non-Christians? What about my own spiritual health? What about the glory of God? And that's where we'll get to uh, in the end of uh, next time, at the end of chapter 10. But tonight, let's give up your freedom more. Give up this ambling. Run. Run. I think a dominant picture is this one of uh, uh, verses 24 to 27, the end of chapter 9. Run. So we're going to look at it like this. Run. Run with self-control. Chapter, 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Uh, and let's just push that a little bit harder. So run, not acting presumptuously like Israel in chapter 10, 1 to 5, but heeding the warnings of the past, chapter 10, 6 to, 7, 6 to 13. Run. Okay? That's why our friend is here. What is he doing? Running. And we say to him, run. Good. Let's go at it then. Run with self-control, says Paul. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Let me read it again. These verses somewhat of a transition, what we looked at last time. Give up your freedom for the sake of those who are not Christians hearing the gospel message. Just don't stand on your own right. Do whatever it takes to make it easy for them. Go to them. But it's a transition somewhat here. So don't be complacent. Uh, chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know? Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Run. 
Now, what's the point of the metaphor? The point of the metaphor is, is self-control, really, uh, verse 25. Everyone who's competing in the games goes into strict training or self-control. Same phrase that gets translated most of the time is self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Same word here, self-control, strict training. That's, that's what he's talking about. Self-control is the distinguishing mark of the Christians who keep going. Now, this image of a race is an obvious one for the, uh, for the Corinthians. Every two years, the city would host uh, uh, the Isthmian Games, the Corinthian or Greek Isthmus. So, uh, uh, not quite as big uh, as uh, the Olympic Games, but uh, the Isthmian Games, a big deal. You get thousands and thousands would pour into Corinth uh, for these set of races uh, every two years or so. So, a familiar idea to them. Now, what is Paul saying? Do you not know in a race that all runners run, only one gets the prize? Run it like that. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, he is not saying that only one Christian in the whole of Corinth would make it to heaven. Run, run faster than everyone else and you'll be the... He's not saying that. He's saying in a race, only one wins. Run as if you're trying to win. That's his point. You know, in the, uh, every year in the, uh, the marathon, London Marathon, 38,000 runners will uh, take place, roughly. varies uh, a little bit, a uh, year on year, but 38,000 run in the London Marathon. 50 are deemed elite athletes. And uh, if you run the marathon, well done. Not many, I think, from this church who run the marathon are elite athletes. They're just slightly different. Most people, if they're going to train, uh, people like you and me, or not me, I'm completely knackered, but, but, but people, some here might run uh, uh, the London Marathon. But what are you going to do? You, you sort of train for, I don't know, Six months, if you're sort of keen, four months. Then you go for a run, a sort of jog, twice a week, maybe three times a week. You'll probably get up to something like 15 miles and then think, well, that's all right. I've practiced getting to 15 miles and on the day, adrenaline will just get me home in the crowd. Adrenaline and the fact that I'm going to get a Mars bar at the end uh, and one of those foil cloaks. Uh, that's what's going to do it for me. Just the, um... So you sort of, you know, you're training, but it's, not, it's a bit different to the elite athletes. The 50 who they reckon have got a serious chance of actually winning the thing. They've got a whole entourage of trainers. They employ people to help them train. They sleep in oxygen tents. They, they do their training at altitude. They have a ruthlessly controlled diet. If you're running to win the race, you don't have a little amble twice a week and go down the pub and have fish and chips and a couple of beers. You just don't. That's playing at the London Marathon. If you want to win, you give it everything exceptional self-control. Run like that, says Paul. Verse 25, everyone who competes properly to try and win the games goes into strict training. Everyone who competes in the games uses or exerts self-control. Now, what does he mean? It's obviously, here, it's, not, it's a picture he's giving, a metaphor. Self-control is not how many miles you run in the Christian life. Self-control is self-control over your emotions, your behavior, your impulses, your thought life. Self-control. Live the Christian life that way, he says. Why do the elite runners uh, uh, go and exert this self-control, going to strict training? Verse 25, they do it 
to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Here's one of those uh, fun details you pick up if you read the commentaries. They all tell you that uh, in the Isthmian Games, if you won, you did get a crown. It's a crown woven from wilted celery. Isn't that just fantastically feeble? You know, you train and train and train, and you get some wilted celery. I mean, I think that's the modern tradition why if you win an Olympic medal, you get your medal. That's quite good, I guess, and a bunch of flowers. You always say, yay, I've trained for years. I get a bunch of flowers. Always slightly off from Boris Johnson or someone like that uh, in the Olympic Games. You see, well, you compare this sort of feeble celery crown on your head or something that will last forever. Even an Olympic gold medal, uh, by the power of Google, I can tell you that the metal is actually worth 410 pounds. That's what goes into it, because actually the, the gold medal, uh, bronze medal, is worth about 60 quid, um, just for the raw constituent parts, if you went to Imperial College and made one or whatever you wanted to do, um, uh, in the metallurgy department. They wouldn't cost you that much, because it's not really gold, solid. You know, it's just a, um, so they're not worth... Obviously, they're worth a bit more emotionally because you've triumphed and your name goes down. He's still saying, you can win a race and people will know you and cheer your name. But you will die. And it doesn't matter if you're a multiple gold winner. It doesn't matter if you, they bury your gold medals with you. So what? What? All that effort, he says, in the Isthmian Games, you might say in the Olympic Games, in a London Marathon, all that effort goes into a little disc and uh, a little line in a record book. And years no one will know. Paul is saying, what I'm talking about is far more important. Live the Christian life wholeheartedly. Run. Because what you get at the end, when Christ returns... Is a crown. What does that mean? Well, we'll be kings. We reign with him forever. It just doesn't compare. A few wilted celery, celery sticks ruling over the new creation with Jesus Christ forever. That's not, a, that's not a tough deal that he's talking about here. Verse 26, I don't run aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I don't run aimlessly. Be a bit odd, wouldn't it, running the London Marathon? Where are we going? I don't know. Down here? You know, it's pretty obvious. You run, you run. You, there's a certain set route. I don't, I don't beat the air. It's not like a man who sort of signals big old haymakers and uh, it just sort of and never hits anyone. I'm not sort of just punching the air aimlessly, exerting all my energy for no end. No, I'm deliberate. I know what I'm doing. If you want to push that harder, I choose my shots. I hit, I connect. I don't waste my time in the Christian life. Verse 27, he's not saying literally I beat myself up. I go in for self-flagellation, but I'm disciplined. I don't, he says, verse 27, I don't want to spend my life telling other people about Jesus, but neglecting my own walk with Jesus, and so that I die and I'm not actually a believer. That would be hopeless. Be deliberate, he's saying. Do not live the Christian life with aimless meandering. Run. 
run. Knowing what you're doing, knowing where you're going, run. Now you read that and some here will think, ouch. Because I take it some know that they do meander a little bit aimlessly through the Christian life. And you're here tonight, but that's a bit hit and miss because you're not here very often. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Don't aimlessly drift through the Christian life. Run. Know what you're doing. Be deliberate about it. Oh, it matters. Uh, some are here most weeks, I guess, here, here on a Sunday. But not entirely sure you want to be. Not entirely sure what difference it'll make to the rest of your week. Oh, don't just drift. Don't amble through the Christian life. Run. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, run the Christian life as if your eternity depended upon it. Because from our perspective, the human perspective, it does. Run. Run with self-control. That's his point. Don't amble. Don't drift. Run. A bit more detail he gives, though, in the rest of the passage into chapter 10. So not acting presumptuously like Israel did, chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 5. Here's his reasoning. Run. Run the Christian life. Don't amble through it. Run. Why, Paul? 4, verse, chapter 10, verse 1. 4, because. Here's his explanation. Here's the basis for his warning. 4, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers... That our forefathers, the Israelites, our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Now look, we'll look at the detail. But just so you understand, you see the comparison he's making here. The Israelites in the Old Testament were an enormously privileged people. God had rescued them from Egypt. He accompanied them all the way. They were an enormously privileged people. They were traveling through the desert to the promised land. Lots of them didn't make it. Privileged people traveling through the desert to the promised land. Lots didn't make it. You Christians in Corinth are an exceptionally privileged people. You've been rescued by Jesus Christ. You're traveling to the promised land of glory, of heaven. Will you make it? Run in such a way that you make it. That's the comparison he's making. Let's look at some of the detail. Uh, uh, verse 1, I don't need to be ignorant. Uh, the Israelites, the, our brothers, our forefathers, uh, they were all under the cloud. and They all passed through the sea. That's not that they were all a bit depressed as they swam. Uh, that is, um, uh, they were guided through the wilderness by the cloud, uh, by the pillar of a cloud during the day, fire at night. God's presence went with them and guided them. And they passed through the Red Sea. Uh, they were rescued. So in other words, they'd known God's redemption as he took them out of Egypt. And they passed through the Red Sea. And they'd known God's provision as it led them and guided them. Those two things, his redemption, his provision. They had all the blessings of being God's people. In the Old Testament, you could say they were baptized into Moses, not literally, but that is they, they followed him, they adhered to his leadership. Uh, just now, Christians are to adhere or follow Jesus' leadership. 
They weren't aware of it, but actually the, the source of all their blessings was Christ. That's what he means. They drank from the spiritual rock. They, they didn't know his name, but he was the source of all their blessings. We know that now. But you, the, his point is, if you follow the alls through. So let me read it again. Uh, our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. There's another one not translated, verse 4. And they all drank the same spiritual drink All of them had these privileges. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most. All these people had exceptional blessings of God's redemption. He'd saved them from slavery in Egypt, just as you Christians have been saved by Jesus Christ. And they'd known his provision. He'd guided them all the way. He fed them all the way. They never lacked for food or drink or, or understanding what they should be doing. All of them had had these blessings. Most of them died. Oh. And so Paul is writing to regular churchgoers in Corinth who presume they're fine. Christians who know God has redeemed them in Jesus Christ from a life of sin, slavery, death for glory. They've known God's provision for maybe years, but Jesus just doesn't excite them anymore. And they're meandering through the Christian life aimlessly, and he says, will you be careful? Lots of them, all of them, had these wonderful privileges, yet they fell. You're wonderfully privileged, what are you going to do? Be careful. Don't be presumptuous like Israel. And then he goes into detail. Uh, don't, not acting presumptuously like Israel 1 to 5, uh, but 6 to 13, heeding the warnings of the past. So verse 6, he's going to give them a, a long list here of things that uh, happened in the Old Testament. We read a couple of them from uh, the Numbers, book of Numbers. But verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And he's going to give them a long list of examples from the Old Testament. Then what's the point? Why is the, why, why is the book of Numbers there in the Bible? Paul says the book of Numbers is there as examples to keep us, Christians, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, the evil things he's going to talk about are just food and sex. Those are not evil things. Those are good things. Those are wonderful things. But the people back then, they set their hearts on them. The pursuit of food, idols, sex became more important than loving the Lord. And that's where it's gone wrong. Don't set your heart on such things. Now, people still do that today. I was thinking back through the life of church. Here's just a couple of examples from Christchurch. I think of John. And uh, he and his wife arrived uh, in the UK and in London. Uh, They'd been married about four years. Uh, But John got excited by another woman at work. I'm very excited by her. And first emotionally and then physically committed adultery. And moved in with her and stopped coming to church. And then moved to Hong Kong just to run away from anyone. So not going back to their home in Sydney from originally. Running away from people who knew them here. Just running away, he and his new woman. And why? A distraught wife, very upset family, 
Why? Well, because actually he just stopped loving the Lord and set his heart upon this woman, just set his heart upon her more than anything else. She's a perfectly lovely girl, but he'd set her heart upon her in a way he shouldn't have done. Or I think of Ken. Ken had grown up in a Christian family and uh, uh, lived, uh, worked in a suburban sort of company for a while. Uh, again, married, lovely, but also a wonderful Christian wife, moved to London. And for him, he wasn't, it was just it was just actually something, it was money, just as raw as money. All of a sudden, he was working for a firm where he got paid a lot of money. The company made exceptional sums of money, and therefore he moved in circles where there was extraordinary amounts of money, and, the, and the, the, therefore the restaurants and, and the bars and the access he had to various things was wildly exciting. And in the end, his wife said, you know, you're just, you know, you're not as keen you used to be as a Christian, and, and actually, you don't always. Are you coming to church tonight? Why are you saying no? You're not coming to church tonight. And eventually, they just he just pulled right away from her. There was no one else involved. His love was money. And in the end, he got fed up with me and others saying, "Come on, mate, what you, get back with your wife. What are you what are you doing?" And he just, so he moved to New York again to start all over, unaccountable, where he could make more money with his firm. Just. Two men set their hearts on oh, good things. Money is a perfectly neutral thing. Uh, this woman was a perfectly wonderful woman. But obsessed, set their hearts upon them. And at that point, when you set your heart on something and they become more important than the Lord, it, it's an evil thing. So that's why I've got the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. That's why it's here. And let me just remind you of some of those things, these examples that are there to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry, which sounds a bit like a sort of, uh, sort of I don't know what it is, uh, uh, an ale conning, a uh, uh, Halloween party. It's a bit more than that. It just means an orgy. So here is Exodus 32. Moses up the, up the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Aaron and the people get a bit bored and so they create a golden calf and they worship the golden calf and they get drunk and they have an orgy and he says, don't do that. That's a similar sort of issues in Corinth. Money and sex. Don't, don't do what they did. Verse 8 is, uh, we had it read, Numbers 25. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. In Numbers 25, um, the Israelites had defeated the Moabites. Did you pick that up when it was read for us? They'd conquered. Uh, and so the Moabites were saying, well, we can't beat their army. Their army stuffs us. They've got nuclear weapons, etc. So we'll never beat their army. So what did they do? They sent in their women. And the women seduced the Israelite men. Uh, and they have, do you remember Numbers 25 was read in a sort of post-coital haze? They say, hey, why don't we just go and worship our gods? And, you know, at our temples, we have sex in the temples. Okay. Uh, say the men, and, oh, don't do that. Uh, verse 9 is Numbers 21. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. In Numbers 21, again, we had that read. It's just gross ingratitude. 
Remember they say, oh, we're going to go into battle, Lord. We make make a vow to you. Will you fight with us and we'll honor you? And the Lord says, yes. And so they go into battle and and they're victorious and they destroy the enemy in front of them. Brilliant. And then they go, oh, we're a bit bored of food. We're a bit bored of the food around here. Quail and bread. Oh, we're bored. And we have more variety of food back in Egypt. Uh, Give us better food or... And so they complain and they moan. Now, grumbling is always a form of idolatry. Always is that. Essentially, when we grumble and say, I'm not happy with what the Lord has given me, we're saying, God, Lord, you are only worthy of my worship. You're only worthy of my joyful praise of you if you give me what I want. If you give me the, the, the career that I want, if you give me the family I want, if you give me the success that I want, then I'll worship you. If you don't, I won't. I'll just grumble and say you're mean. Because these things, that's what I want. If you help me, if you're a means to the end of these things, brilliant. If you don't, And at that point, you set your heart on something that's become evil to you. Grumbling is always rebellion. When you grumble, you're saying, Lord, I don't like the way you've arranged my life. I don't like the way you've sovereignly set the circumstances. I think I'd have done a better job than you. It's rebellion. Grumbling. Don't be like that, he says. Verse 10, uh, again, was a grumbling against uh, leadership in number 16. We didn't have that one read. But verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by a destroying angel. Loads, thousands pour into a hole and are killed. Again, the, uh, the issue there is the people of the Israelites are saying, well, why is Moses in charge? Why not me? I don't like the way God's arranged it. I want to be in charge. Grumbling. And Paul says, verse 11, these things that happened, again, they're written down as examples. Same as verse 6, examples. They're written down, why? As warnings for us. On whom the fulfillment of the ages, that's just the time between the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven and his return. They're warnings for us. So, verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. Uh, If you're ambling through the Christian life, and just think, you know what, I, having sex with this person is much more important than obeying the Lord's commands on sex. Be very, very careful. If you're persistently grumbling and saying it's not fair, I've been dealt a bad hand by the Lord. He has not arranged my circumstances well. I will not joyfully praise him because he hasn't given me X. Be careful, says Paul. Verse 12 if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, important caveat. It's very important. Please notice in verse 12 who it is he's warning. It's the presumptuous person. If you think you're standing firm. 
Some of us are very tender-conscienced. Some of us are very hard-conscienced. He's warning the hard-conscienced person. If you're of a more tender conscience, and if you're sat here tonight thinking, do you know what, I do grumble a lot, but Lord, I don't want to be like that. I don't want just to be chasing after my desires rather than following you. I, I repent. I want to fight. I want to be different. Lord, I have stumbled. I've fallen. I've stumbled in the race. I haven't run wholeheartedly. I, I keep on stumbling, and I make mistakes sexually, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, I do want to be different. He's not talking to you. Do you see verse 12? If you think you're standing firm, if you think I'm fine, and yeah, I have a sexual thing over here and I chase money over here and I grumble a bit about the Lord, but it's fine. He's warning you. And if you get on, you know, these are the sort of things God uses warnings for his people. It's when you need to know if you're hard hearted and the warnings very rarely penetrate, then you need friends to help come and warn you. If you're tender-hearted, and any warning in the Bible you think must apply to you, then you also you need your friends to say, no, I don't think he is, because you keep repenting. You're trying to grow in the Christian life. Do you see who he's speaking to? Verse 12 is very important. It's the presumptuous man. If you're sat here thinking, I'm a Christian but I'm fed up with the hand God has dealt me in this life. Or I'm a Christian, but let's be honest, other things are more important. Your family is more important than God. Your career is more important than God. Come on. <laughs> Just be honest. If you're that sort of person, he's warning you. Be very careful. I was struck, uh, uh, Phil Alcock wrote a, a lovely little article on uh, our birthday. Uh, 15 years, our crystal anniversary of CCM. You can read it in Connect, coming soon. And, uh, but he emailed a number of people who'd been here at the beginning of church 15 years ago and uh, asked, what are you able to give thanks for joyfully and uh, what will be your anxieties for the church? Here's just one. I, I can read it because he's no longer here. Uh, so this is James DeCostabardi, who was uh, on the staff here for the first five years of the church, uh, now in New Zealand. Oh, I'm so grateful for the people who I saw in the early years who grew in Christ. They continue to serve Christ keenly now. It's wonderful to see those who persevere in serving Christ, even through difficulties that God in his wisdom has brought to us. I find that so encouraging. Okay, and what would be your anxiety going forward for a church like Christ Church Mayfair that you know? Well, my greatest concern for Christ Church Mayfair will be that materialism will suck the lifeblood out of the Christians during this generation. The particularly younger people will have shortened focus, shortened focus, and they will lower their horizons just onto this world. The church will exist, but it'll be completely ineffective. The people are very busy, but they're not busy with Christ. They're busy with their own dreams. I think that's realism. For a church in central London, be very careful says Paul. But do you see alongside the warnings the wonderful promise of verse 13? So verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Verse 13, here's the promise. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. There is nothing unique in your experience. 
Uh, it's most commonly the, uh, the, the uh, you hear this most commonly with uh, uh, unhappy marriages. No one suffers the ma- No one has a marriage as bad as mine. Chapter 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. You just need to know that. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And the promise is this, and God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, it'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God will provide what you need when you're tempted to drift away from him and put something else first. He will. He'll provide what you need. You just need to avail yourself of it. It may be he removes you from a certain scenario. Some of you, I know, struggle. You, you work in a completely debauched workplace and just think, how can I live in this? How can I operate in here every day? It's just miserable. The, the constant infidelity, it's just such a... And you struggle in that sort of place. Well, maybe God removes you from it. Maybe. Maybe that's how he does it. It may be that he gives you the strength to stand up in the place of temptation. Maybe he gives you a new colleague who encourages you. I don't know what it'll be, but I know that's a pretty clear promise. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, it'll also provide a way out so you can stand under it. I have to say, I think for me in my life, it comes clearly to me. When I, was, I nearly almost bogged this up, age 22, 3. I moved to London uh, and uh, was a newly qualified teacher, school teacher, in a very demanding school, uh, very high academic uh, uh, levels, and I was working seven days a week just to try and keep my head above the water, you know, one page ahead of the kids in the textbook, that sort of thing. Uh, it was pretty fraught and uh, desperate not to get caught out. Flat out, flat out, well, just working, working, working. When I first moved to London, I got this, to my mind, golden accommodation. I got to house sit. Uh, in this multi-million pound mansion for a few months. Amazing. But I, wasn't, I couldn't have a load of mates live with me. It was just kind of me looking after it. So it was great. I mean, I'll never live anywhere that nice again. But it was lonely. Uh, and I was working flat out. And I hadn't worked out where I was going to church. And at work was this wonderful woman, Jessica who was just delightful. She laughed at my jokes. That's rarer than you think. To my mind, very attractive, very warm. She was clearly interested in me, and I was interested in her. And so, foolishly, a couple of times, we went out for a drink, once for dinner, and all my colleagues would say, God, you know, she's my old king. Go for it. That is terrific. Good work uh, in that slightly pagan you know, way. And I was so very close to completely screwing up. And another Christian joined the staff. And I met with him and prayed. Not about her but just the encouragement. What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? And then you start seeing a few more mates, Christian getting stuck into church, and all of a sudden, whoa, that was madness. It was a, it was a striking thing to me how quickly I went from being Mr. Keen, 
I was Captain Keen Christian at uh, university. I'd become a Christian, and I was, let me have them. You know, I tell everyone about Jesus, and I'm going to uh, uh, go to Egypt for the whole of my life and tell every Muslim I can find about Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. I was Captain Keen, and then, whoa, 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 whoa. Almost just chucked it all away, almost. This woman was in a time when I was, yeah, pretty low and a bit lonely. It was very fabulous. Very kindly, God gave me just what I needed. But there's no great surprise. He always will. But our side is, verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Run. Don't amble. It's actually not a game, living the Christian life. Run. Exercise self-control. Keep your emotions, your impulses, your desires under control. Don't complacently amble the Christian life. Run. Run for the prize. Why do the athletes give up fish and chips and beers for sushi three times a day and nothing else? <clears throat> I hate sushi. The, uh, why would you do that? Because you want your eyes on the prize. You know. Keep your eyes on the future where Jesus is taking you. Run. Run knowing what God has redeemed you from. From slavery to sin, death, hell, for heaven. Run. Run knowing God's presence is with you. It was with the Israelites in the desert. Jesus runs with you. Now, it's not a race you run on your own. When you're tempted, he'll give you what you need. He's with you. Run. But don't presumptuously drift through the Christian life. If you think you're fine and yet you're dallying with idolatrous pursuit of something else, you love something clearly more than the Lord, hear the warning. But when you stumble, when you stumble and we all stumble, know that Jesus picks you up and you can run again. Run. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you that you, you're a God who loves us and who woos us with wonderful truth and you excite us with how magnificent Jesus Christ is. And you warn us, like a good father, a good parent always does for their children, you warn us of the dangers of living foolishly. And so, Father, my prayer, our prayer this evening is that we hear this warning rightly, that those of us who are of tender conscience and know we stumble and know we fall often in the Christian life would keep going. Now, this is not addressed to us. But those of us who are hard-hearted and actually are not pursuing you, who are drifting, who love something else more than you, who know that there's relentless grumbling about their lives, would we hear that warning clearly? Would we be careful? Would we run with self-control the Christian life? We pray we would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.